What is up, everyone, and welcome into episode 34 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. My name is Mike Johnston from Mike'sLessons.com, and my co-host, who will be joining me shortly, is Mr. Mike Dawson, Managing Editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. In this week's episode, we've got a grip load of stuff to get to, including a bunch of your guys' questions. In our educational section, we'll talk about metric modulation and how both Mike and I apply it to our personal drumming. Our featured artist this time is none other than Mr. Will Calhoun from the band Living Color. In our gear review section, we'll check out the Chicago Drums snare drums, and as always, we will give you our picks of the week. So let's get started. Well, good morning, brother. How are you doing? Well, it's afternoon for me, but good morning to you. (laughs) It is 9.39 in the anti-meridian here, so that's what, 12.40 for you? Yeah, yeah, it's right in the middle of the day. You're breaking the day in half. Am I disturbing your lunchtime? No, actually, I don't. I eat lunch late. I'm like a 2 p.m. lunch eater. Oh, nice. It doesn't make any sense because then I go home and have dinner at like 5.30, but, you know, it is it's just what I do. I try to get all, a, the bulk of my work done before I eat. I feel you. I, I just don't ever stop eating, so that's, <laughs> there is no lunch. There's no dinner. It's just one giant day of food getting stuffed in my mouth. I just try to make it as healthy as possible. So What's your breakfast? Our, breakfast is always the same. Breakfast would be... It's, a, it's always the same exact scramble. It's one egg with about a half a cup of egg whites mixed in with two Morningstar vegan sausages. I'm not vegan. I just like the taste. Uh, and then I just cut up uh, – uh, not cucumber. What's the other one that looks like a cu- – squash. <laughs> I cut up some squash, uh, diced peppers, and then uh, spinach. And I scramble that every morning. And it's been like that for probably since I was like 26, so like 13 years. Wow. That's pretty I don't good know. breakfast. It's a great breakfast. It gets me going, and then uh, and then if I know that I'm going to the gym right after breakfast, I'll also throw in like maybe a you know a piece of whole wheat toast with some almond butter and get some of my carbs on, so I have some energy. Uh, carbs get a bad rap, man. Like people, you need carbs to live. Like, they're, well, I they're, mean, a lot of us eat like eight thousand carbs a day. True. Yeah. I it's it, honestly I, when it comes to dieting. And by dieting, I don't mean like losing weight. I mean you choosing your diet. Just find a happy balance, man. Mm-hmm. Like I've just seen people that are like, yeah, I haven't had a carb in six weeks. I'm like, you look wrecked. Like, <laughs> you can't even form a sentence. You need carbohydrates to at least keep you mentally sharp too. Um, yeah. And then there's other people that are like, I think this whole no carb thing is a joke. All I've done is eat carbs. And I'm like, you've gained 46 pounds. So yeah. Yeah. You got to you gotta keep them in check and you got to be active. I mean I, I've experimented with – not counting carbs at all and i just gained weight no matter what right. and sure i i have severely limited carbs and i dropped a ton of weight now i'm in that process of where's the balance because I, I mean i don't like crashing at the end of the day if you don't eat any carbs you just crash 9 p.m you're done yeah i mean I, that's that's really been the big thing for me throughout my life was finding what do these things do and then i use them for that so if i know i have a super active day it's going to have more carbohydrates involved and if i know that I don't if I'm going to be sitting at the computer editing footage all day like I've been doing then it's pretty much you know a, a, a low carb diet but as long as you know what you're doing go for it but doing the whole you know sometimes I'll hear somebody that's like yeah I'm just drinking these juices for like a week straight and I'm like all right like I mean having a, a quick cleanse is one thing but yeah. but kind of the like you know going the Steve Jobs route where you're like I only eat apples and it's like dude you're gonna die. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work so good for him. No, no, he, it didn't go well. So, uh, so, anyways, other than that, everything good in your life, buddy? Yeah, it's been pretty busy, pretty hectic. And and uh, yesterday, I got to actually chat with Aaron Sterling. You know, I, I oh, mentioned nice. his, yeah, yeah. his masterclass last week, and 
So I emailed him. I was like, hey, I have to talk to you about this. We're going to do a little story in the magazine about it. Um, and he was, it was just so fun to just to chat. And, and he actually asked me questions about what I practice. I mean, that's, to me, the sign of someone who's still really curious and really into what they're doing when he asked me how, what I'm practicing. Like, it matters. Right. You know, like, who cares oh, what I'm so doing? that's so cool. Yeah. That's so cool, man. Yeah, it was super cool. So he's so, a good guy. He is. He's super, he's super cool. Um, he's very honest, but also humble. Like, he, he makes fun of himself just as much as he would pick out somebody else's shortcomings. So, uh He's great, and if you haven't seen it yet, I, I've I've watched that masterclass every day, probably three times a day. Really? I mean, it's up there. I put it up there as, as good as Steve Jordan's "The Groove Is Here." Wow, man. Well, I'm I've uh, I haven't had any time to do anything uh, since I talked to you last. I had to go to L.A. and do this uh, thing for Gretsch, which was so cool, man. Yeah. I got to meet so many cool people. We actually talked about Aaron Sterling because I was like, okay, well, I'm hanging out in L.A. with all these studio cats. Let me find out what they think of Aaron because I just learned about him. And, yeah, he's definitely becoming quite the legend around there. But it, it was great. Uh, do you know Michael Miley from uh, Rival yeah. Sons? Yeah, I love that guy. Oh, my God. We just clicked right away. Yeah, um, he's super cool. And so I'm, I'm helping him out making some uh, – he definitely doesn't need my help with what he's doing. But he wanted to get into some other styles and other genres. So I just told him, like, dude, I'll make you some video lessons for that. Dude, he's heavy in the practicing. He's yeah, no, he's really, really into student. it. Taking lessons with Dave Elitch right now, and yeah. I said, you know what? I'll I'll give you some things that are just kind of candy and fun. That don't. What I don't want to do is get in the way of whatever you and Dave are working on. That's very serious. Uh, but he just wanted some some fun, you know, little tricks and stuff. So I said, yeah, man, I'll make you some videos. But Zach Danzinger was there. Uh, Gary Novak, who I'd never met. Oh my goodness, uh, just. <laughs> I mean, that's like he's at you know for me he's in that Vinny Weckl Will Kennedy level of like oh that's Gary Novak. Yeah, Gary yeah. Novak. What a down to earth dude he is! Holy mackerel! I've never um, met him. I don't know him. Wow, he couldn't have been cooler, man. He was so cool. Uh, Joe La Barbara, or oh yeah, Joe. Wow, he's a Cal Arts. Yeah, he was amazing. Like I, I mean, he's it just couldn't have been cooler. So it was uh, yeah, um, Michael Miley, Zach Danziger, Gary Novak, Joe, uh, Steve Ferone was there. Um, nice. uh, Pink's drummer Mark Schulman. Yeah. Don Lombardi, of course. Uh, is it Nikki Gillespie? Um, Nikki the- Glassby? Glassby, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, I think that's who was there. Um, no, Kim Thompson. Oh, yeah, the other Beyonce drummer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry. She was honestly there. She had so much to do. She was there super quick, did her video shoot and got out. She's a beast. Um, Have you heard her play? Oh, yeah. No, she's the real deal. Yeah, yeah she's, she's incredible. That's why she was busy. She's like, I've got nine other gigs in eight right. minutes. I gotta go. Uh, Gergo Borlai, uh, Matt Sorum, who I'd never met from Guns N' Roses. Oh, cool. um, what a nice guy. And then uh, who's the cat from the Zach Brown band? Do you know his Chris name? Chris Myers. You asked me last. Yeah. Week. Oh, did I really? <laughs> yeah. Shut up. I don't even talk to you anymore. He's awesome. He th- these guys were just so unbelievably nice. So it was a great hang, and the coolest people ever. Ever. But the. The cool thing was what we did for Gretsch, so uh, hopefully I can talk about it soon. I, it involves their snare drums and stuff, and they really want to establish themselves or reestablish themselves as a snare drum company, which um, right. they're right. really going for it. So we had a great time, and it was just a, a serious treat to get to hang out with those guys. So it was a lot of fun. That's great. Man. Cool. All right. Let's get into 486 listener questions. Yeah. Keep them coming. MDinfo at moderndrummer.com. We've got uh, – I've got about a dozen. We're going to go through as many as we can, which will probably be about five. Uh, let's see. The first one actually comes in from my good friend Pal Randolph, who's a, who's a monster drummer if you haven't seen him play. 
uh, he does like um, symphony gigs where they do like Zeppelin with a symphony orchestra or no like way. Pink Floyd with a symphony orchestra. I mean, and it's it's some of the. I mean, it's kind of like the perfect gig to kind oh, of be able so to play cool. that music and be in a really comfortable, like beautiful venues and stuff. Right. Anyways, he's a badass drummer and he's written for us some. Uh, but he had a question. Um, how do we feel about uh, the differences between high-end API-ish or Neve-style mic pre's versus just stock pre's that come on an interface like the PreSonus 8 or whatever? Sure. Um, is sure. it worth to spend the extra money on a nice pre um, or is it really not worth it? So I have a pretty strong opinion about it. Yeah, I would say all of my opinion, unfortunately, is based on something that I can't compare, which is I have the pre's that come in my board and I have pre's that come in kind of lower end interfaces. And then the only time I've used Neve pre's and really high end pre's have been in a studio. So I can't compare those two situations because I've never had them personally to experiment with. So I'll let you take this one. Um. I think you should work with what you have and not worry about trying to get the highest end greatest stuff because you will lose you will never make it the money back unless you're doing high end gigs. So for me it's kind of like like I still have a laptop from two thousand eight that I'm recording into. Like I'm I'm not upgrading because I'm not getting the gigs that would justify it yet. Uh so like, yeah, you'll hear a difference between an API and, say, a PreSonus Pre, but it's not going to be enough of a difference. I think the API just kind of gets you the sound you want closer right away, where you have to work with your your lower quality pre a little bit more EQ, more kind of creative compression and stuff. Um, but that said, the I've had no one complain about the transients on any of my recordings. And one guy even said, what mic pre's are you using because they sound great? I'm using an $800 unit that had eight mic pre's in it. So $100 mic pre's, essentially, uh, M-Audio Octane. And they're just clean and clear. So the the consumer-grade stuff is so good now that I don't see – unless you can really – you're really missing something. If you're not hearing something, like occasionally I'm hearing like it's just not thick enough. The tones are just not thick enough. So maybe I should upgrade. But then I'm like, well, I'm getting – fifty hundred dollar recording gigs i'm not going to upgrade you know right it's right. just not worth it so i would say don't do it you'll be chasing i mean you'll be spending a good mic pre you're talking 1200 bucks a piece 750 yeah. bucks a piece if you need 16 yeah. of them just do the math yeah. it's just super expensive i don't suggest it unless you have the budget or have the clientele or you can really just hear the difference i don't right. think you will no, I think if you need those pre's, it's going to cost you way less to go to a studio that has those pre's, rent the studio for a day, and get out. Exactly. I mean, maybe you could buy one, like buy two a at first, snare. <laughs> or use it for your overheads, whatever. Yeah. Just pick a pair of them, and then you know, once a year, maybe buy another one. So then yeah. you're, you're kind of. I only see it up. being beneficial if you're starting your your own studio that you're going to be renting out to other people. But for yeah. yourself, no. And and keep in mind too, where where are most people hearing this stuff? You know, even if it's like, well, I, but it was an album. It's like, yeah, but that album was still listened to through earbuds on an yeah. iPhone. So, uh, it, it, I agree. I don't think it's worth it. All yeah, right, and, next. Well, oh, I go ahead. Say, and like ninety percent of the recordings are going to have samples dropped onto them anyway. So, yeah, good point. Really, you just need a clean, clear sound, and and let the the producer mixer do whatever it needs to do to it. Uh, next question. Uh, this is coming from Tyler. He bought their Beatnik Rhythmic Analyzer. Oh yeah, Tyler uh, Lesperance. Yeah, yeah. So we got a question campers. about how he's using it every day. He's running through all the basic subdivisions at different tempos. 
Um, he's seen an improvement, which is good. Um, he mentioned I mentioned that I use it when I'm warming up until I get to an 85% accuracy. He wants to know if I can go into more detail on it. So uh, there's really not a whole lot to what I do. I turn it on. I just turn it on, the default, which I think is 60 BPM at 16th notes. I put it in the view where you can see your strokes going horizontally on like a uh, a horizontal scale rather than the, the vertical spikes. And I just play through stick control. I go exercise one to whatever the number is where you're doing fours with each hand. Got it. So I do. I just run through the first page of stick control, maybe four or five repeats per exercise, and just try to get 100% um, for like two minutes or something like that and, and try to get 100% accuracy. And then... Then I'll bump it up to the higher uh, difficulty level and kind of see where I'm at. Um, and just recently I started uh, using – I feel like we mentioned Mark Juliana every – I know. Freaking I know. It's silly. It's silly. <laughs> I, I talked to him about it too. I was like, dude, please don't ever listen to our podcast. It's ridiculous. It's like in the magazine. Like we have a joke that you, you always can find Bonham or Ringo in Modern Drummer magazine. Somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere. And I think – Mark, Mark shows up in the podcast. the podcast. Yeah. But anyway, he had a great exercise that he talked about at his PASIC clinic this past yep. fall where he plays like a measure of eighth notes, a measure of triplets, a measure of sixteenths, and a measure Back of triplets, triplets and just yep. loops it. So I programmed that into the beatnik, and I just do that. I mean, it's the thing with the beatnik for me is it's not a chops builder. It's a concentration, focus, control uh, exercise. So it's not about playing all, you know, playing all your chops and working up on all these rudiments and right. stuff. It's, For me, it's, it's just very like, different than just, control. Than just a pad. It's mental, it's focus, it's yeah. getting getting my head into the... Because if you do it a couple of times, you start really hearing the click versus how your sticks are hitting the pad. You can hear like minute down to milliseconds. It's almost, it'll make you crazy, but at the same time, once you go into the gig, you're just your ears are open. You can hear everything. Yeah. I think more than anything, it's just a commitment to your own growth in controlling your time and i so however you're doing that that's the most important part yeah i I definitely i I have it as well the beatnik and i haven't brought the bpm above 80 since i got it just because that's not what i was doing i wasn't trying to blaze anything and actually the pad doesn't work that great if you're blazing like rolls because it can't find where everything is so so yeah I, i use it the same way and i think most importantly tyler just the fact that you're committing to your timing is fantastic. I just got the uh, – uh, we just got three of the Yamaha DTX 750Ks. Like they're – it's one level below their flagship top-of-the-line electric kit. Yeah. And so I don't know if all the brains have this or not. This is just a brand-new kit for me. But it's got the thing where uh, it's got a time trainer on it. And if you aren't in time in the grid that you set – so I was playing a groove. So you have to be within the eighth notes of it. You can't hear any of the pads. Oh yeah, that's been in. They've had that in their, their systems for a long time. Have they really? Yeah, maybe the it's just the fact. I think what it is is they put that now on the fr- on the actual brain. So it's uh-huh. like there's a button for trainer. That's great. Um, and, and I mean, God, I was like at first, I was like, none of these pads work. <laughs> oh, that's because I'm not in time. But uh, yeah, so I think. And I don't think that, like, I don't see it as a crutch where I'm going to get on the gig and then not be able to play without that. I think it's just the fact that I spent 20 minutes last night caring about the consistency of my notes. Yeah. I think that's the real practice. Exactly. So so to, I, I saw Tyler's question, and the second point was pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, so do you want to read that real quick? Yeah, he says, I'm wondering if you and Mike disagree on anything. 
to where the point you can have a debate on it. Uh, he thinks it would be interesting to hear our basically just do the the red and blue discussion on the topic yeah i I mean just a heads up guys we don't talk before this so we don't (laughs) decide to agree on everything we just generally we're talking about kind of large drumming perspectives so it's pretty easy to agree agree on those things i'm i'm sure if we got down to more minute stuff we'd find things that we disagree on but you know we went into this podcast with the the idea that we're good enough friends that if we did disagree, it wouldn't get weird or awkward. But I also wanted – I mean Mike's a very honest person, so I wanted him to feel free to disagree like he did on Hot Rods. He was not feeling them. Yeah. And so <laughs> I should call him Dowel Rods. I don't want to dog out Promark. He doesn't like the Vader or the Promark ones either or I mean uh, the Vic Firth ones. But you know, I think it would be really fake if we thought, OK, what is one thing that we can fight about? I think it's just over the course of the podcast, some, something will naturally show up where it's like, dude, I couldn't agree less. Um, yeah, I have to agree. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I grew up near DC, so I have an aversion to politics like you would not believe, and debates <laughs> and debate tactics and yeah. lobbying. And I mean, I have, I have friends who they're professional lobbyists, and their job is to just debate whatever they're paid to debate. And, and sometimes they they're, they're debating the opposite thing within a couple months. And it wow. disgusts me. So I'm yeah, never, ever going to be the one to be like, you be red, I'll be blue today. It's just not yeah, no. going to happen. I think, it, I think it will happen naturally at some point. Um, but I don't think – you know, I could, I could see me saying like, I just don't get the whole – why does everyone care about quintuplets? And then Mike's like, oh, I'll tell you why. I use quintuplets <laughs> on every pop gig. And I'd be no, like, no, I don't, you don't care don't. about them either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> see, that's what I'm saying. It's like we kind of uh, – right, Here's something. I think green tea tastes like crap. Dog, I swear you are so lucky you are so far away from me right now because that is the only thing that could get me kind of fired up. Look at okay, you guys can't see this on the podcast, but here's my bottle of green tea, and here's my cup of green tea. So I've got two right next to me. It's like liquid grass. (laughs) That's exactly like my thought. And I have to tell people when I'm like, hey, I've got green tea in the fridge. Do you want one? They're like, yeah, I'd love one. I'm like, okay, hold on. I drink real green tea, so it's going to taste like I took a bottle of water and I scraped bark into it, and I took fresh cut grass and stuffed that, and then I shook it up. Do you still want it? And they're like, oh, yeah. And then they hit it, and they're like, oh, what is this? It's terrible. Terrible. It is fantastic. No, I agree with you. Yeah, it's the best <laughs> thing ever. <laughs> All right, next question. Okay, let's see. I've got a couple more. Let's go through. Um... Oh, lordy. There's so many of them. Um... Okay, Mr. Felbrick, Ernie. Ernie. He bought uh, Art of Bop Drumming, and he's struggling with the reading side of it. So he yeah. has no trouble. He's been playing drums for 30 years, so he has no trouble picking stuff up by ear, and physically he can do the stuff. It's just reading it on the page is giving sure. him trouble. So how do you practice it? Uh, where should he start? Uh, should he go back to a beginner book, take some lessons? My thought is get Alfred Method, drum, drum method, book one, and start page one and learn how to read. That's, yeah. There's no other way to do it. No. And and the art of bop, unfortunately, as soon as you're into, I think it's like the second, comp, it might even be the first comping exercise where it's breaking it up between snare and kick. Now you're not reading on one line anymore. You're reading these syncopated rhythms and they're broken up on the staff. And that that's challenging in itself. So if you can't read the syncopation or syncopation, if you can't get that book, the Ted Reed book, and read those rhythms on one line, you're going to have a really hard time reading them 
in Art of Bop. And I don't have the book in front of me, Mike, but maybe you remember. I think it's written in straight time too, right? It's not written in like – it's not triplets. It's like it's written as one and two and three and then you have to transpose it as one, a two, a three. Yeah. Um, I would say I'll get it on our commercial break, but we don't do commercials. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it's written like syncopation where it's written as just quarters and eighths. And then you have to transpose it to the us. So it can be tough. So I, I'm with you, Ernie. I don't think it would be a bad idea at all to get either Alfred's uh, Drum Method Book 1 or Syncopation, either one of those. I don't think it would be a bad idea at all just to sign up for one month of private lessons with an instructor and just say, hey, I, I can already play drums. I really just need some basic reading lessons, and I want to make sure that I'm not training my brain in the wrong way. Um, I think that would be fantastic for you. Yeah, and the, and the good thing about the Alfred book is it, it's not syncopation doesn't explain how to read. Alfred That's true. Book was written to actually show you exactly how to learn how to read. So you Perfect. could teach yourself. I think you're probably at a point in your own in your own study and experience that you could teach yourself how to read with that book. And yeah, then, I don't agree with that at all. That's just a bunch of poppycock. <laughs> hey, I did it, man. <laughs> uh, no, yeah. So I think that would be great. But then. Um, once you can read syncopated rhythms in general, then seeing them split across the staff. Because once you get into like the third comping exercise, then you're dealing with the left foot as well. So, um, And there's some really cool stuff. I don't know if it's in Art of Bop or in uh, Beyond Bop, but there's like these four-bar passages, these comping passages. Like there's a Roy Haynes one. And yeah. it's it's really based off the ride symbol and the comping at the same time. And they're the coolest passages ever. If you can just learn this four-bar phrase – you can fake jazz all day long. It's really and – it, and it's all Roy Haynes stuff, so it's really cool. Cool. I mean, that's, so that's a really advanced book. I don't recommend that as a, as a beginner jazz book at all. No, not at all. Uh, but anyway, next question comes from – okay, let's see. What is the name? Nicholas. Nicholas Murray. He's a band teacher in New York, and he has many drummers each year. Uh, he has to prepare them for you know state solo and ensemble festivals, band concerts, sure. all that kind of stuff. Um, he wants to know what do we think is the most important things for a drummer during their first year of study? Are there certain oh. rudiment, rudiments to get into, techniques, drum set exposure? Uh, so basically, what do we think is most important in year one of a drummer's life? Well, Mike and I both started, at least I think you started, um, did you start in school band? Or school music. Programs. I got a drum set the year before, but I started studying in fifth grade. Okay, yeah. so yeah, that's exact. I was fourth grade was was when I got my first pair of drumsticks, and I was in school band. Uh, so I can tell you this: first of all, I don't envy your position. Drummers are the hardest group of musicians to wrangle in because while you're working on your circle of fifths and your scales with all the other musicians, the drummers have nothing to do and they just screw around. And all they want to do is bounce their sticks off the floor and see how high they can get them to bounce. Yeah. They want to see if they can get the pencil to stick in the ceiling when you're yep. not looking. <laughs> yeah. It is so hard to wrangle these guys in. So just know that Mike and I feel your pain. <laughs> We're here for you. But in that first year, you know, I, I was really upset that my teachers faked my roles and didn't let me know that I was faking them. So it was all baby bouncies, pinkies out to get my double stroke rolls. And I really did think that I had a great double stroke roll until I took private drum lessons and I was doing that kind of stuff on the hi-hat. And the teacher was like, what are you doing? What That would never work on a, on a floor tom. And I had to relearn from scratch. So one thing that would be great is you know uh, helping your drummers to understand that pretty much everything they're ever going to have to do that's required by you is going to be either singles or doubles. So if they can just work on those two things – 
and then add a buzz roll in, they're pretty going to be pretty much going to be able to cover most of the stuff that you have them reading. Uh, and the other thing is the reading and being able to understand the rhythms. Uh, what, what in your first year, what did you go through? What um, do you wish you went through? Well, it was at the time I hated the the approach, but it was so crucial, and I'm so glad that the band teacher did it to us. He made all the drummers the first year get a bell set, so oh. not a snare drum. You were to rent a bell set. So the percussionists the first year learned exactly the same material as the clarinet students, the trumpet students, the trombone students, the saxophone students, the flute players. We learned the same scales. We learned the same little melodies. So wow. our, our winter concert had no drumming in it. Everyone just played bells. So I learned how to read melodic music within the first six months of playing. And then finally for the spring concert, he started introducing hand cymbals and snare drum and bass drum and timpani. But the first six months was we didn't we didn't touch a drumstick. Wow! So you're trying to cause you're trying to cause a riot at this guy's school. That's <laughs> awesome, man. <laughs> well, Look what I Tyler mean, did to us. Now he's getting us to like. <laughs> no, I, I, I if I could, super important though. Absolutely, super if important. I could go back and do it, I, I would have loved to do that. We unfortunately had the choice. So it was like, okay, put that guy on Glockenspiel or on the bells. Like, I'm not doing that. I want to be on bass drum or snare drum. Yeah. And I, I totally agree. Because then all of a sudden I was in high school, and they just assumed that I learned all this stuff. So they were like, you're on timpani. Well, people think it's just drums, but it's not. You have to read yeah. which drum to hit. And I couldn't do that at the time when I got to high school, and I was really bummed. And then seeing some kids from other junior highs just jump on the bell set and play them and sight read it. I was, I was, you know, or, and then that was translating to marimba and vibes. And I was like, Oh man, what did I miss out on? So I agree. That would be fantastic. Yep. So hopefully right. that helps. Uh, we probably should get to the other ones later. So Alrighty. Let's move on. Let's move forward. So now it is time to talk about a little bit of educational stuff. I wanted to talk to you about metric modulation and mainly because I think it's a pretty confusing thing. And some of the people that have, some of the students that have brought it up to me, I've been shocked at what they thought metric modulation was and how they were using it. And I noticed there was this kind of blurred line between polyrhythms, metric modulation, beat displacement. Now, I, I know that in your current pop gigs, you're not using it at all, but I wanted to kind of see. How different are our definitions of metric modulation as opposed, uh, you know, as far as how they relate to the drum set? And then how different is that compared to the actual definition of metric modulation? So, okay. The, did did the you Wikipedia? look up the actual definition? Oh, of course. Yeah. Okay. It's the most confusing crap ever. Uh, metric modulation is a change in pulse, rate, tempo, and grouping, which is derived from a note value or grouping heard before the change. Yeah. Right on. Okay. So, um, now, my understanding before I looked it up was that it was more of a melodic thing. It was related to more symphonic things, and they were modulating their either their key signature or whatever. So, But the metric, in my mind, the way I see it is metric modulation. Metric, I see that as rate of speed. Modulation, I see that as change. So I'm changing the rate of speed that I'm current, of something I'm currently playing. Yep. Um, but I don't see that as the same as changing the subdivision and playing something new. So if I was playing paradiddles as eighth notes and then I went into double strokes as 16th notes, I would not see that as metric modulation. Um, whereas I do see halftime and cut time as metric modulation. If I play something 
and then I play that exact same thing at a new rate of speed, I see that as metric modulation. Mm. Um, I just see halftime and cut time as so simple that they got their own names. But yeah. you are taking something and then you are modulating the meter or the rate of speed. Um, so that's one thing. And the other thing that I saw in the definition, and I have seen it on a ton of jazz charts, but I never considered it metric modulation, is they were saying that it's also metric modulation when you change you keep the same notation, but you change the feel from straight to swing. And I, you know, oh. so all of a sudden, eighth notes equals dotted eighth and sixteenth. And I've never considered that metric modulation no. at all. That's a feel okay. change. Exactly. But that's, I mean, it's, dude, it's on Wikipedia. It's well, real. Whoever wrote that is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> that guy's an idiot. Jimmy modulation is a moron. Okay. So for me, metric modulation. I could use it in where I'm playing something already, and then I play that new thing at a new rate of speed. So if I'm playing, say, an eighth note groove, one and two and, and then I change this to eighth note triplets, but I don't change the groove at all. One and a two and a three and a four and a one and two. That, to me, is metric modulation. I did not change anything of what I played. I just changed how fast I was playing it in relationship to the pulse. What about you? I would consider that an implied metric modulation. Okay. I, for me, a, a metric modulation means you're taking some sort of uneven subdivision or grouping. So it could be triplets, it could be dotted quarter notes, and then using that as a pulse to create an entirely new uh, tempo. Gotcha. Okay. So to so, do a full metric modulation, you would not do it just for a measure. You would just change, and that, that, that's a new tempo. Gotcha. So Going you would forward. take every third sixteenth note that becomes the new quarter note pulse. Exactly. And now you're, you've modulated into this new meter. Right, and, and you can yeah. return by modulating back, but you don't just do it for a couple beats to make it feel like it's faster. That's To me, that's an implied metric modulation, but you're gotcha. still keeping the original pulse underneath that. Yep. Whereas if you go full-on metric modulation, that pulse is your new pulse, and you can just forget about the old pulse. Got, so full Wayne Krantz style. Exactly, just, just change. Currently just change. playing faster. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the difference between that and Wayne is just Wayne literally says up and they go faster, randomly yeah, they're faster. Yeah, they're not using any metric. That's yeah, all just exactly. a straight feel. So that's no, the difference. I, I agree. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of where the metric modulation thing has gotten so kind of diluted and just a little out of control is to do that, you would actually have to use a polyrhythm to get there. So you don't have to, but I'm just saying that would be every fourth, sixteenth note or every third 16th note, excuse me, would be a three over four polyrhythm. Yeah. So you use that pulse of the three over polyrhythm, three over four polyrhythm to get you into your new modulation. That becomes your quarter note pulse and you're there. Um, so I think that that's kind of, now the, the next step is do you personally ever use it at all? Not since I stopped playing jazz. When I was right. really heavy in the, and trying to become a jazz drummer, that was, that's, was the thing. I mean, we we obsessed over the Wynton Marsalis record, Standard, Standard Tom Volume 1, which has Jeff Watts on it. And, and that whole record is they're just playing standard songs and, and messing with the, the modulations. So the tune will go, like the pulse could be quarter note triplets, it could be dotted quarter notes, it could be right. whatever. It's the whole thing. They could be putting the pulse on two and four instead of one and three. The whole record is just messing with the time of these classic songs, like caravan and things like that right yeah so you know everyone got sucked into that because it just sounds so crazy cool um and then guys like ari honig uh kind of took it to the next level he's got a great book which 
sadly not too many people are aware of, I don't think. It's called Metric Modulations, Contracting and Expanding Time Within Form. Highly recommended. It's out on Mel Bay. And what he talks about is how to do, like, really systematically do this stuff over top of, like, 32-bar forms, over top of blues forms, so you don't lose your place, but you're going into really advanced stuff, like half-note triplets and all kinds of crazy stuff. So he's, oh, that's awesome. He's kind of, like, taking the, the Wynton Marsalis thing to, like, the, the extreme analytical level of it. Right. So that's a good one. It comes with the DVD, too, so you hear him and his bass player play, and I... I challenge anyone to watch that DVD the first time through and not get lost. <laughs> like the first, <laughs> the first time they play a blues, it's like, oh, I don't know where the form is. Yeah, but everything is is predetermined and accurate, so it's really great. Nice. So that was when I was really, you know, we were messing with. We did some of those style things, but in recent years, zero. I mean, not at all. Right. Yeah. I, the only time I've used it I, musically, I don't think I've ever used it once. Um, and if anything, it's those little kind of foreshadowings, you know, the, the implied metric modulation. It might be a bar, e- even musically, I have never even done that. It's only been in my soloing playing. In the London Drum Show solo, I used, you know, kind of what we're now calling true metric modulation, where I took, I was soloing in 16ths. I took every third 16th note, one E and a two E and a, e and a four. And then that became my eighth note, one and two oh, and yeah. three and four. And, uh, and then I was able to get in and out of this kind of modulation where every third 16th note became my eighth note. And then I just went straight back into the 16th note thing. And it was it was actually exactly what Ari Honig titled his book. I was, you know, kind of contracting and expanding time. Yeah. And just I just kind of wanted the audience to know that it was all properly it was all proper and correct, but they kept kind of leaning forward like I put the brakes on in the car, mm-hmm. and then they leaned back like I stepped on the gas. But it was all tied to the exact same pulse. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, I, I've done some of that live. Whenever we get into more uh, open solo sections, like with the, the guitar power trio I play with, we do a lot of Hendrix and Jeff Beck, and those tunes are just open to where when you get the intensity going, maybe throw in some quarter note triplet type implications that kind of make it feel like you're going faster but you're not actually changing the tempo so i do do it off the cuff and improvising but i haven't like played a tune that involves that as a compositional tool since undergrad well there we go all right let's get into our featured artist this is somebody both you and i dig and uh i have a very funny story about this man but uh our featured artist this time is mr will calhoun if you guys don't know will calhoun from his great playing with the band living color you should check it out because it really did kind of change the game that entire band changed the game back in the uh 90s and it was quite incredible but he's also played with tons of other people that you've definitely heard of jaco pastorius wayne shorter B.B. Uh, King, Marcus Miller, Public Enemy. So he's had quite the career, and he's just one of those guys that every time I think that the past was his heyday, I see him doing something new, and I'm like, oh, dude's still going, just <laughs> yeah. killing it, you know, um, still playing fantastic and pushing the boundaries of what is being played. So have you ever met Will Calhoun? Yeah, yeah, a couple times. He he is actually the reason I play drums. If there's one guy that I can wow. As the source, he's my he's my ground zero. Tyler, was... we do not talk about this stuff ahead of time. I promise. <laughs> I literally at midnight emailed Mike <laughs> this email that's called the rundown, and it just said Will Calhoun is our featured artist. Wow, that's so cool, man. Yeah, it was fourth grade. Uh, it was you know we had like our tables were four kids. It was me, two got two boys, and a girl. 
And the two boys were already drummers. They already had drums and stuff. So they were just constantly talking about drums, and I just got so jealous. I'm like, i got to figure out what this drumming thing is all about. Wait, did you say your table? Yeah, we had like a little table with four kids. What the hell are you talking about? Fourth grade, man. At home? Fourth grade. What what is going on in your school system? Fourth grade language arts class. Okay, we didn't have tables. We just had a classroom. But apparently you guys had something cool going on. I I was trying to think. I'm like, what, you grew up in a commune? What did you do? Just sit around on the floor on a freaking rug and and sing Hare Krishna songs? (laughs) Look what Tyler's done to us, man. You didn't have a table? (laughs) No, we had had like 30 individual desks. We all faced forward. There was no communication with other children. That's forbidden. Come on, man. Okay, there were four desks arranged in a square to where our chairs faced each other. That's all I need to know. So you had a table. <laughs> I got it. So we had that. We just called it like, okay, now we're going to go into groups. But okay, cool. I got it. I just didn't know what the hell you were talking about. All right. It doesn't so, really matter. Anyway. Your table. So you were influenced. People were playing drums. You want to know what was going on. Yeah. And, and, and I always was into music and watching MTV. So that was right around, that's that year, that fall was when Vivid came out. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. I just saw that and I was like, next to Van Halen, that was the first time I ever paid attention to the drummer. So Will Cahoon just became my, my hero. Yeah. I wanted to be him. So when And I we got had it, MTV, so you got to see it too. Yeah, exactly. And I, I wanted to get a Pearl drum set. I wanted to play Zildjian cymbals. I mean, the whole thing. I wanted to get really high stand so I could put my ride cymbal 12 <laughs> feet up in the air. <laughs> totally. Yeah, so he's the reason I, I became a drummer. I mean, I oh, learned, so I learned cool. Vivid on one of those little toy kits with a splash cymbal and a 10-inch snare and a tom. <sighs> I learned the whole record on that thing. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I'm with you. Um, I would say he was probably after Phil Collins. He was my first favorite drummer. You know, yeah. Uh, all of a sudden, it was like this is the guy. I want. I have to have this kit, and I've got to. I got to somehow get through the last thirty seconds of Cult of Personality. I can't figure out why they just have to take off and go so fast <laughs> at the end there, and I can't do the little bell thing. But I had to, and and I don't think until that time because I, I kind of. Bands like The Police, even Rush, I, you and I have talked about how I had to go back in time to, to get to them. So they weren't yeah. part of my childhood. It wasn't till later. So as a young drummer coming up, I had never heard the drums that loud in the mix before. Oh, yeah. They're so where loud. I could, they're so loud. And I was like, <clears throat> okay, that's cool. Like yeah. I, I've, I've, And then, unfortunately, that ruined every time I'd go into the studio. I was like, yeah, the drums need to be louder. Kind of like uh, – like Vivid from Living Color. And it's like, that's oh, not going to happen. So, uh, But it, it was something where I could identify it. I could hear it. I didn't have to strain to, to try to figure out the parts. Audio-wise, I could really hear them. I just fell in love with that. And then going on from there and there, I mean, I, I still followed them. And, you know, then when Doug Wimbosh got in the band, yeah. uh, same thing. And, uh, and I really love, too, like if you go through Will's discography, you can just tell, like, how good of friends these guys must be because he's on Doug's solo album. He's on Corey Glover's solo album. Oh, yeah. You know, they're, they all kind of just kept playing together even when Living Color wasn't going on. So really cool stuff. So, so did you I, know in the beginning that he was splitting those patterns between the ride cymbal and the hi-hat? Could you figure that out? When I, no, no. I thought it was all in the ride cymbal. So did I. And, I thought uh, he just had a crazy right hand. I, and that's why I was like, yeah, I play Living Color until the break at the. I mean, I play uh, Cult of Personality until the end, right. and then when they go to the double time thing, I bow, I bow out. I feel <laughs> it was kind of like it was this totally possible song, and then with one snap of the fingers, it turned into Hot for Teacher, and I was like, yeah. what the hell just happened? I can't play this. <laughs> uh, so you know, it was like as soon as we got to that part, I'd press pause, I'd change the tape to Guns and Roses, and I'd play Paradise City. I was oh, like, nice. cool, got yeah. that down. Same thing. 
at the end, double time. I'm like, ah. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was such a huge thing. So uh, at some point, probably like four or five years ago, I was at NAMM, and I had to do a photo shoot for something. And the photographer was shooting the uh, – what's the Bonzo – is it the Bonzo Bash or whatever? Yeah. Okay, so he's shooting the yeah, yeah the, the the John Bonham tribute thing. So they say, hey, we need you to meet the photographer at the Bonzo Bash. I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, I'll go there. I get there, and the guy's like, I need you to play the snare drum for this uh, photo shoot. And I said, okay, well, I don't I don't have a snare drum or a stand. And he's like, why why not? And and he was kind of being rude. And I'm like I'm like, look, man, I'm I'm at Nam. You can't just steal a stand and a, and a <laughs> drum and walk out the door. Because he's like, why didn't you bring one? I'm like, why would I bring one to Nam? So anyways, kind of going through this. And he goes, okay, well, we're at the Bonzo Bash. I'm sure there's plenty of drums and stands. Go in there and and find one. And I'm like, okay. And I, I this is a f- big photo shoot for me. So I want it. And I'm like, you got it, man. So I go in to where into the building where they're rehearsing. And I find a drum that's just sitting. And I ask one of the techs, hey, can I just borrow this drum? I'm right out in the parking lot doing a photo shoot. I said, yeah, go for it. So that was cool, but we couldn't find a stand. So the photographer was like, just go ask whoever the hell's playing right now for his stand. And I'm like, okay. And I'm trying to be as polite as I can because it's a small industry. I don't want bad stories to get out. So I go up there, and it's Will Calhoun. And he, and I've never met him. He's one of my idols, and he's playing Fool in the Rain and or working on it. And I'm like, sir? And I stop him from playing, and I ask him for the snare stand from his side snare. I'm like, sir, is there any way I could just borrow your snare stand for just one second? Oh and he gosh. just looked up at me with like so much disgust, <laughs> and he was in the right. He was not mean. He couldn't have been nicer, but he was like, are you effing kidding me right now? Oh, nice. And, and I'm like... That's the best response ever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and I had to be like, no, I'm not kidding you at all. And uh, he's like, yeah, I'm kind of busy working on the shuffle so maybe you can come back later and i was like yeah i'll just leave so it was so we had to put the snare stand on like a road case and then shoot from the snare up and it was the i was like i I wanted to tell the photographer hey punk you just made me look like an ass in front of my hero he deserves a smack in the face i agree i agree i i I haven't shot with him since so (laughs) anyways that's my only will calhoun experience i've never met him since so yeah, well, but, he has a. I mean, he kind of revived himself for me when he put out that his first solo record. I think it's called Native Sun, maybe. Yep, um, I had it up. Uh, Native something. Yeah. It's Native amazing. Lands. Na- yeah, and it's amazing. It's a combination of a, a experimental, experimental electronica music and jazz. I mean, he sounds amazing, and he's the first guy I heard play the mandala drum. Yeah, no, the, and he no, did that the on the modern- whatever one he has. I don't remember. Yeah, the one that he did on the Modern Drummer Festival. Yeah, he did that at PASIC the year or so before the the MD Fest, and it was again. It was there's only been a three or four times when a drum solo has made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. It was when Glenn Kochi did the Monkey Chant for the first time. Right. It was when Will Calhoun did his his thing. It was just, I mean, he is a master. So creative, yeah, yeah. such a badass he's, drummer. He's incredible. Too. He's incredible. So, yeah. well, if you guys get a chance, go back and check out the stuff. You know, starting with the uh, Living Color stuff, you can check out Vivid, Times Up, Stain, all of that stuff, and uh, and then from there go. I mean, if you really, really want to work on your pocket and really, really want to work on your pocket, just try to learn Love Rears Its Ugly Head. That'll yeah. change everything for you. You'll learn what fills really are when you just yeah. play a groove. And then with the kick, you go, do don't, don't, do don't, 
scat. Oh. <laughs> and you'll be you'll be you'll rush it every time. And yeah, lovers, it's ugly head. I'm not saying it's a drum show off thing. I'm telling you, you'll listen to it and think it's a, it's easy, and then you'll try to play it, and you will have some trouble. So yep. <clears throat> All righty, let's get into some gear review. So you got to check out some drums from. Now I'm confused on this. It's not the Chicago Drum Company. It's just Chicago Drum. Yeah, there was unfortunately a couple of years ago there was there were two or three companies that came out with Chicago something in their names, and, okay. and one of them had ceased ceases to exist since then. So Chicago Drum is. Um, it's. I think it's basically the connection is the owner's uncle, his great uncle, and his father worked at the Slingerland factory back in the day. And is that kind of why their badges look like Slingerland badges? Is yeah, it kind they, of like they started out being a restoration company. So people okay. would bring in their old Slingerland drums that were beat up and had crappy ah, edges, gotcha. and they would refurbish them and get them sounding good. So they just branched out and turned it into uh, they're building their new drums they have they make their own shells that are kind of spec to the old five ply slingerland style with maple and poplar or mahogany and poplar got it and their badge is a total tribute to the niles era uh slingerland badge sure. so yeah they, they they're going straight for that sound so it's like getting a uh, a classic slingerland sound that has all the the benefits of a modern made controlled you know very precisely built drum and can we give them a little love for having probably the first ever modern website that I've seen in the drum industry? For, uh, <laughs> this is at least it, it's responsive. It's set for what? Do you know what responsive means? I don't know how much you know. Yeah, about Yeah, I've it. learned it because of all of our <laughs> stuff here. Yeah. So yeah, it's pretty cool. It's it's actually responsive. It sizes down to whatever you yeah. know window you put it into. It's a nice it's a nice website. It's pretty rare that anyone in the drum industry has a modern well-built website and this is uh this is definitely really nice it, it gave me it was very easy to find what i was looking for and to find the other thing i love is all the information on the company yeah is there as well so i got to really because at first i was like oh they totally ripped off the slingerland badge and then luckily the information was there and i was like oh they didn't rip it off it's a tribute yeah it's very purposeful and now it, it kind of led me deeper into their drums so you got a six and a half um maple and poplar snare and then a five and a half ma- mahogany and poplar snare right yeah Yep, exactly. They both were five ply, um, and I think they both had yeah solid maple reinforcement rings, you know, rounded ish bearing edges. Very very classic sounding. And I'm I'm pretty familiar with with Slingerland drums. I've owned quite a bit over the years, and they sounded they sounded like good versions of Slingerland drums because you can go through vintage drums and find some real duds. I mean, I've had a couple that it's like. Why does this drum not sound good? Like, what can I do? Yeah, I spent yeah. three hundred bucks on this stupid drum, and it just sounds bad. <laughs> and it just looks like a drum. One I had to send down to uh, Bruce Hagwood at RBH to just redo the edges because really? they were just so bad. I mean, they were. It just sounded like I was hitting a box, and it just drove right. me nuts. Because it's a beautiful drum. It's like a, one of those Duco blue and kind of gold. Yeah, classic I, I had drums. I had that exact same Slingerland drum. Yeah, um, it's gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah, so I got it redone and it sounds great. But these kind of they sound great right away. And the, um, I mean, they were just kind of great all-purpose kind of vintage-ish, but they could handle modern modern styles. They're very are they sensitive. sensitive. Okay, very I was just sensitive. Kind of yeah, yeah. The edges are thirty degree roundover. Okay, so, so they're kind of like a broadcaster. Yeah. So exactly. they're they're going for that vintage sound. Yeah. And what one thing I like too is they even though they are a custom drum company. They're not a silly custom drum company. Like the finishes are very Slingerland, very old Gretsch. Yeah. Um, so you know they do a couple kind of customy things, but not 
to that level where they're throwing out skulls and crossbones on the side of your snare. So, um, and I, I saw that they offered the the canister thrown. So it's pretty yeah. cool stuff, man. So now, as far as the six and a half, since the six and a half and the five and a half were different woods, was there any major difference between the two as far as what kind of applications you would use them for? Yeah, I mean they were they were pretty consistent. But uh, the the mahogany definitely was more of a jazz kind of sound. That's not the way I would describe it. Just and it happened a, to be a five and a half. Yeah, five and a half. It was just more of a jazzy symbol. A uh, symbol. Yeah, it's a jazzy symbol in a five and a half by fourteen inch dimensions. <laughs> How heavy would that symbol be? Five it had that corrupt feel. Fourteen. <laughs> yeah, it had that corrupt feel. I love yeah. all my snare drums to have that kind of Byzance wash. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Oh, spring break, right? Anyway, yeah, buddy, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, the the five and a half mahogany was a little bit more jazzy, good for brushes and and lighter kind of stuff. The the six and a half could do that as well, but it was kind of more of a. I would use it more for like modern country or classic rock or something like that. But cool, pretty versatile. I mean, I I really dug them, and I think it's poplar, man. That's the that's the key ingredient for that sound. It's yeah, the maple or the mahogany or or. or minor it's the poplar that makes all the difference i i totally agree that's uh that's what my brooklyn is that's what my broadcaster is and it's just it's just a it's a great combination now do we have audio of these yep all right well let's and now real quick i just need to know you you generally record all these with no muffling right uh i think always now in the beginning okay. i i would do like the low tuning with like a a wallet or something on it but now okay. I'm, I'm just keeping them completely open so you can just, just imagine open. you can control all the ring with a little bit of tape or whatever awesome well, let's check them out It is now time for pick of the week, and this is our chance to alert you to something that uh, is something that we enjoy in our own personal lives. Maybe it's a piece of gear, or maybe it's an album, or something. And this time, my pick of the week is actually a solo. It's a drum solo from Mr. Dave Desenzo, and it's from Modern Drummer Festival 2006. And I, if you ever need advanced drum lessons, 
there's probably 4,000 little lessons in that one solo. It's about yeah, 18 it's minutes classic. long. Yeah. It's just – it's the most well-put-together drum solo I've ever seen as far as modern drum solos. It's it's kind of – you know, maybe if – I don't know. I, I've, I, I have a hard time finding a better drum solo for a drum festival than that. As somebody that does clinics and does drum festivals, I can't imagine there being a better solo than that. It was so interesting. It does not feel as long as it is. The how understated the difficulty is in some of the things he's doing. Yeah. You know, he's got the three over four polyrhythm going on with the left foot uh, cowbell, and and I mean complete freedom over the top of it. And then just like we talked about with modulation, using that three over four to get into, he stays there for a little while. That becomes his new pulse. It's it's mind blowing. Yeah, and he kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, we've been the guys at, at Vader have been. You know, telling us do something with Dave, do something with Dave forever, but we never did. So he kind of came on that festival with like no one knew what to expect, and and, and I he, did he was that? a highlight, highlight for the weekend. And I think he had the best drum sound at that festival as well. Oh my goodness, I, beautiful sounding drums. I mean, I, I instantly was like, huh, maybe I should look at Pearl again. Mm-hmm. I mean, his drum sounded fantastic. The snare didn't sound overly woody and like an old. It didn't sound. Like, it just sounded great. So yeah. he sounded fantastic. The playing was incredible, and the the composition of the solo was just unreal. I mean, just unreal, man. So yeah, and now I, it as far as the way it is on your guys's DVD, he comes out, he rips, he leaves. Is that how it was there, or did he give a clinic at all? No, that was pretty much it. Because at that time we were giving the because we added two artists to the show, so we were okay. giving the opener just like a twenty minute slot. And so you had no idea that the opener was going to like make it rough for everyone. Coming we had after that? no idea what to expect. I mean, sound check. We're like, oh, oh, this guy's for real. Yeah, like, but we had uh, no idea. We thought he was, we thought maybe he'll come out and do like a lesson because you know he's known for teaching at Berkeley and all that. So sure, we were just we were blind, and, and everyone in the room was just an instant fan. I mean, he oh he dominated. Yeah, no, it, it was it's incredible. So yeah, if you haven't, you can see it on YouTube, or you can. I'm sure. Can people still order um, the DVDs through your guys' website? Yeah, I think we still have some, and I think they're, they're streaming as well. Oh, cool! So definitely check that out because there's usually a ton of content on there that you can't find anywhere else. Uh, but check out Dave Desenzo drum solo from Modern Drummer Fest 2006. I promise it will blow you away. What is your pick, sir? All right, so bringing it back to the Aaron Sterling Masterclass. Um, one of the things he taught is funny because one of the things he says is don't do what I do, come up with your own ideas. But uh-huh. the thing that he does is just so great that I think everyone should do it. So he talks about how to control a ringy snare drum by not using padding, but by using rattly stuff. So instead of muffling a ringy snare drum to make it essentially turn into a dead snare drum, right. you can keep the drum sounding like a ringy snare drum, but just put some metallic items on the drum. So really? what he grabs is the minor kessing, which is a, it's like a, looks like a shovel. It's like a piece of a, like sheet metal that's just cut to kind of look like a shovel, and it has like, uh, like keychain rings all over it, so it rattles. And it's designed, oh, yeah, yeah. I know it's designed exactly to put in about. the side of a djembe. So yep. when you play the djembe, it kind of rattles. He just lays that on, you know, halfway on the drum, so it's just kind of like half of it is on the the snare drum. And it sounds absolutely amazing, so I had to get one. Uh, and in in the meantime, I'm in trying to come up with my own stuff as well because I don't want to just rip the guy off. But right. these things are only like eight bucks, so you can save yourself the hassle of building some something that just sounds like crap. Like this what's, thing. What's it called good. again? The minor what? Kessing. K e s s i n g. 
it's like eight bucks on on online. I ordered it on Amazon. It was there in like two days. So yeah, yeah. Okay, so where did I see the video of him playing this? Was that on his Instagram feed, or did you post it? He is no. He's been putting like little chunks from his masterclass, so that's on there for sure. I just, I just saw. Well, I just saw. Um, yeah, I saw something yesterday where he's like, "This is like my fourth video with this metal thing on my snare." Yeah, I can't stop it loving is. it. Okay, that's what it Got is. It. So that's. I mean, that's a great place to start because you can just buy that. It's cheap. You don't have to waste any time making something that's not going to work right. You know, this will work. And then do what he says and just try other stuff. Just try to find something else. It works It works amazing because you can record the drum. It's still ringy and kind of has all that overtone, but it just kind of dies down faster. So you don't That's get that cool. pitch that just lingers forever. Now, do you get any... Do you get any like benefit as far as does it also give it more texture with all those rattles on there? Yeah, it gives you okay. like a white noise kind of extra cool. sizzle. So cool, if, you, if you loosen the snares a little bit more so they rattle kind of the same length that the Kessing rattles, you almost can't even notice it. Wow. Very cool. It's very pretty cool. badass. So, yeah, Minel Kessing, K-E-S-S-I-N-G. And check out Aaron's Masterclass. <laughs> Double pick of the week. <laughs> All right, everybody. So that is our time for now. I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode of the podcast, episode 34. If you can, please give us a favorable liking on iTunes or Podcast One or wherever you're getting this podcast from. Keep emailing us your questions at is it mdinfo at modernbills.com. What the hell is it? Mdinfo at modernbuilder.com. Bam. All right. We will see you next week. Go practice.